Anthemums by John Steinbeck was published in 1937 and is hailed as a classic American short story. It focuses on the Allens, a farm family, and Elisa Allen as she tends to her chrysanthemums and encounters a peddler who wants a few of her flowers. Today, we'll be discussing the symbols of the chrysanthemums, the seller, and his ominous nature. This is Analytical. Hello! Hello, hello. I'm Hannah. And I'm John. And we're your favorite literary nerds. Today we'll be discussing the chrysanthemums, and I want to start off by talking about what they symbolize. On the surface, the story seems to just be about Elisa as she is gardening, but I think her flowers and the power she gets from her flowers is a really deep symbol of feminism within her. I think it's kind of funny that you stress that within her part, because if you haven't read the story, then you don't know, but Elisa Allen is described throughout the story as masculine. She's described as having a thick, like, broad shoulders and big manly hands. It specifies that in the book. I mean, the short story. So I think it's, I think that's what you're talking about when you say within her. You're talking about the feminism within her. I think I would say femininity within her. I was meaning like feminism, like power, not femininity. Okay. Okay. So I was thinking it as like, her husband kind of hints like, oh, you should use your green hand magic on my apples. And she was kind of like, no, this is for my flowers. And I think that kind of shows like her power within it. Okay, so like she derives the power from her task or her hobby here. Yes, and so I think that's how she can be seen as equal to her husband because she gets that. I think that's another interesting point that links to one of mine in that um, what's a woman's task? Because the peddler kind of says that later on, like, ain't the right kind of life for a woman is like his direct quote talking about his life as a peddler because he comes up and like starts trying to sell her stuff and then he gets her interested in the flowers and she's like, wow, I want to live like this man lives. She kind of expresses a want to like change something. I think that she doesn't necessarily want to live like this man lives exactly. I think she just is really tired of her life and that's what this quote symbolizes. Yeah, and I think you can see that throughout because the husband, I guess Mr. Allen, I don't think we get his name. Maybe Henry Allen? I think it is Henry. I feel like it's Henry. So we get... Where Henry wants to go out to eat for dinner, and she's like, oh, that'd be nice, a nice change. And then he goes away and does his work, and then that's when the peddler comes. But whenever they do go out to dinner, she dresses up really nice and fancy and looks very feminine. Even then, like, she kind of gets some power from dressing up nicer. And I think that's an interesting thing we can look at, too. But it says she asks, oh, can we drink wine tonight? Can we order, you know, like steak or something? And I think that's interesting, too, to see how she wants to change her life just in these little ways of going out to eat more. Well, even with that, she also kind of brings up the fights. She kind of wants to go to the fights. Like, she just has that little interest in her. She doesn't actually, I don't think, want to go to the fights. She says, it will be enough if we can have wine. So she, she almost does, and she's almost like, we want to go to the fights, and Henry's all for it. Henry doesn't care. I really, Henry's the most clueless guy I think there is. But beyond that, Elisa just wants something different, I think. And so the fights, like, she asks specifically if they, like, get bloodied. So I think she just wants excitement. That's what she's missing. That's what she's lacking. And that's what she's, that's what she's looking for through her flowers. Yes, and that actually does bring up a good segue. This story is kind of sexual in nature as well. It definitely is. It has some sexual undertones. We might have to, like, rate this one not safe for work or something. But the flowers and how the man is kind of focusing on her flowers in literature and in, like, pop culture, people describe, you know, women's virginity as a flower. It's definitely an age-old symbol. 
Yes. And so whenever the seller comes in all dark and jagged, almost kind of like thorny with a rose. I kind of got that symbolism with his letters being jagged. She doesn't have roses, but I was like, we're talking about flowers. It's a symbol. <laughs> he just seems to be kind of like predatory and she gets a little like flustered. Yeah, she definitely does. I think that flusters is that that flusteration, that being flustered, <laughs> that state of her fluster is um, coming from her just, her really wanting to prove herself to a man. And like, I'm not saying like that. I just mean like he comes up and he's like, oh, like I got a lady down the street that wants to grow some chrysanthemums. Can I have some seeds? And instantly that's what gets her because she's like, no, you can't get them from a seed. They have to sprout. You get the seedlings. And so he's like, oh, well, I didn't know that. So like, and then that's what allows her to like, and that's what ultimately um, ends up in her like paying him to fix a couple of pans. And like, he gained the upper hand there, but she was trying to like show her strength to the man in that situation. It worked out in his favor, like by chance, but it was her like exerting her control over the flowers or her knowledge over the flowers, I should say. Yes. And I think that's where she's trying to be seen as an equal to a man. And that's where she is an equal in her flowers. So that kind of brings back to the feminism the chrysanthemums represent. She is equal with the flowers. Maybe nothing else in the world she is equal, but she is equal with the flowers. Yes, I, I agree 100% with that. And actually, I want to ask you from there, then why does John Steinbeck describe her as so masculine? So I kind of wondered if she was someone who maybe wasn't fully female, like XX chromosomes. You can have XXY. And I kind of wondered if maybe she also was like a trans individual. That might be looking too far and maybe, you know, stereotyping, but well, I feel like it could be a thing. I think it's not necessarily wrong to discredit that theory, but it's just... I don't know enough about John Steinbeck. And I think he might have heard about something like taboo in the time because he really spoke out a lot about the political nature of like, that's kind of what the whole Grapes of Wrath, his book Grapes of Wrath is about, is p politics. The whole thing about the Dust Bowl and like Oklahomans. You should read it. It's good, but it's so much politics. And it kind of makes it boring in places. See, I have not read the Grapes of Wrath. Red of Mice and Men, where again, he does kind of use a character who has mental disabilities. And that character is almost seen as equal in some parts, but also does not know his own strength because of his mental disabilities. I'm totally giving away all <laughs> of Mice and Men. It's like 100 pages. It's fine. You but can I, spoil that. I feel like in that time, which especially like in the 1930s, people who were like mentally disabled were not seen as equals, were not treated with any sort of respect. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it is fair to say that John Steinbeck did write about progressive issues in his time and that I can definitely see this story being about trans individual. And that's an interesting viewpoint to have. I don't know if it is necessarily correct. It is a very shallow short story well, first on of the all, surface. Hannah, all opinions are valid. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a joke, but I also mean it in real life. Like, any kind of thing you can glean from a piece of writing, I think, is valid. So I think that since you see that in this piece of work, like, it's a valid opinion to have. And even if it's not what John Steinbeck intended, it is a viewpoint that you have and can back up. So I think that makes it correct. That's a fair point. That was a really good thing. <laughs> um, should we go a little bit, what? <laughs> Just, that was a little off topic there. My bad. No, it was good. <laughs> I mean... I just know how to respond. I think you're about to make a good point there, Hannah, about the shallowness of the story. Yes, I was. So the story, it really is, seems very surface level. You kind of get like a little slice of life. 
of this, like, just afternoon at this woman's place. And so, what do you think about the shallowness of the story? Well, the shallowness really reminds me of another American author, Ernest Hemingway. I don't know if, yeah, John Steinbeck's American. I'm just going to, yeah, I'm just going to go is. with that. Yes, they're both yes, American. I said another American. American. Another American author, Ernest Hemingway. And Hemingway wrote a lot of short stories, and a specific one that comes to mind is Hills Like White Elephants. And in that short story, it just describes a conversation between two individuals. But you can pick up so much on that conversation. And Ernest Hemingway had a theory, which this, uh, which his piece of work, The Hills Like White Elephants, was like written with in mind. And I think it kind of applies to the chrysanthemums as well. His theory was the iceberg theory. And his theory, like, you know, icebergs, you can only see 10% of like the 100% iceberg. So 10% is above, 90% is below. And so Ernest Hemingway's theory was that short stories should be written with this in mind, where you only show like 10% of the whole short story like situation, and you allow the 90% that can't be seen to be picked up by the rest of your short story. So the reader should know that 90%, but they should not read it. And I think that totally applies to this story because you only are reading 10%, but there's so much deeper feelings and like deep symbols within the story. Yes, absolutely. And I think that a lot of that is also portrayed in John Steinbeck's writing style. It's amazing. His writing just really portray portrays a lot and it's very descriptive. And I honestly think if we were to reread this, we would pick up something new again. Like, we would never have the exact same thoughts every single time. Correct. And that's just it's from, like, an abundance of, of symbols, I think, is the main contributor to that. Because anything in this can be like, oh, that's a symbol, that's a symbol, oh, that one's definitely a symbol. And you can pick up different meanings from the symbols between, like, what's going on in your own life. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how else to agree with you. I'm sorry. You can say exactly. <laughs> Jeez. And actually, to bring it up again, another symbol within the chrysanthemums, I think, is her own ability not to bear children. Um, it never talks about her children. It does specifically say she's 35, so that'd be like at the end of her childbearing age. And at the end, it calls her an old woman, that she feels like an old woman. And I think that the chrysanthemums are to represent her, the children she couldn't have. That she is so nurturing and her hands are so green for these flowers but her own womb isn't green enough for children. Well, especially in 1937, I think 35 would have been kind of old to have a kid. Like, it's kind of old now, but especially in 1937, I'm saying. So I think that theory is very correct. I agree that it definitely seems that they should have a child by now, especially since he's a farmer. Like, they should have a child by now. Yeah, it just, it does seem where they don't, because especially from a farming family, a lot of times they use their kids. Free labor, you know? Free labor, yes. We grew up in a farming family. John did a lot more than I ever did. I didn't do a whole lot either. <laughs> but usually the way it works out is free labor. I have $20 in my pocket. <laughs> Good. I was reaching for my chapstick and I got $20. I think John Steinbeck also had a history of farming in his life. He was born in the Salinas County in California. And a lot of the stories actually take place in that location. So I think it's kind of important to him. And this story does take place in that Salinas County. That's interesting. I actually didn't get a lot of specific setting from this story. I mean, I can see it taking place in any farm town. Like, I could see it taking place in Kansas. I mean, it does reference specific roads, but, like, I was like, cool, go down Bethel. <laughs> I guess I just read a little bit more Steinbeck. I know I read um, East of Eden, and that one also has a lot of Salinas County, like, location in it. So I think that's why I kind of picked up on that, because it was kind of like, oh, that's a nice little callback to another book I read by him. And if you're listening to this, you should read East of Eden as well. It's amazing. <laughs> John's just going to recommend every Steinbeck book ever. Um, maybe not Grapes of Wrath. I actually don't recommend that one, but you should read it if you're, like, assigned it. Don't just, you know, do the cliff notes. I would never advise that. <laughs> Or do that. So I think we can get into a little bit of the ominous nature of the peddler. 
So in the beginning, whenever he arrives, it seems like he's going to pass by. She doesn't think anything of him coming to her house. She's like, what do we have? We're just a small little farm. And then it talks about the jagged letters, how they're like dripping almost. And I thought kind of like how if you like, you know, see something written with blood, it drips. Like it's not, it wasn't clean, like clean paint or anything. It's like he did it hanging up and it dripped down and was kind of scary looking. I don't know if I necessarily got that murder on this five year getting. I definitely got like creepy guy vibe. Like, you know, like don't go around him. Don't, don't take the free candy vibe. But like, I definitely did not get a murder vibe. I don't know. I just think it was very ominous and it was very like foretelling of something bad is going to happen. And so I was like the whole time, like she's going to do something. She's going to get nabbed. I I definitely did get a creepy vibe as well. Maybe not like so violent, but definitely creepy. Yes. And then Whenever she does finally talk to him, she's kneeling on the ground and she looks up to him. It says her breast swelled passionately. So I'm like, oh no, what is going to happen? What story did we choose for you guys? <laughs> this one might have been a little bit borderline. I think, it, I mean, a little bit borderline. I think there's definitely some undertellings. We kind of referenced them earlier. There's just a little bit of the nature, of the more sexual nature, that something is going to happen. And you're kind of like, oh no. We probably should have seen that coming, honestly. Like, it just, it's titled a flower. Like, that that's a pretty sexual symbol. Even going back to, like, the Canterbury Tales, I'm pretty sure flowers appear in sexual nature in those. That's fair. But I think we also read A Rose for Emily, and that is not sexual in nature. Well, well I mean, well, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some necrophilia in that one. <sighs> so, yeah, the story definitely has some different undertellings under it that we haven't covered before. Well, John, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Yes. Okay, let's get into it. All right. John Steinbeck claimed out the story that it was designed to strike without the reader's knowledge. And I think he definitely meant this emotionally. The most telling thing about this story is that the one he wrote right after it was The Grapes of Wrath, where he gave a lot of political, like, discourse. So I think that what's most telling about this one is that there's none of that. There's not any politics. It's purely personal. And that's an important distinction, I think, especially considering his next work. I think I'm going to argue with you there. All right. I think there might be a little bit of politics because it says, I wish women could do such things. Like Elisa says that. And, you know, the peddler is like, women don't really have this place in society. I think Steinbeck was kind of addressing those issues of like feminism and not women not being equal. Okay. I, I agree with you there. I'm, de- I'm not disagreeing. Have you read The Grapes of Wrath? No, I know it's not as political as The Grapes of Wrath. I think there is some politics in it, though. Okay, I guess what I mean to say, then, is that Grapes of Wrath tells you exactly what to feel. After every chapter, which talks about a certain issue, like, in the chapter underlying, kind of like this, I would say, the next chapter was, like, dedicated to explaining that issue in detail. Interesting. But not, like, in, like, actual words, just in more metaphor, but looser. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it was terrible. No, it was awful. (laughs) So the first chapter was like, oh, the story. And then the next, and this is why I hate The Grapes of Wrath, I think. Maybe that was just the book I read, but I hate it. Um, <laughs> but it's made a lasting impression. And isn't that what literature does? You should read the ending of Grapes of Wrath. Just the ending. Just the ending? Just I the could ending. probably do that. If you read the last chapter, I think you would be like, oh, and then just put it away and you would never want to read <laughs> I never the rest. need to read it again. No, just the, la- the last chapter. If, you, if you've read the last chapter, you know to, yeah, just read it. I mean, I think Steinbeck does use a lot of figurative language within this and too like he talks about she crouched like a fawning dog that's a simile right there just right off the page he's he uses a lot of figurative language to not say a lot in this story it's 11 pages and i thought oh it's gonna be such a long one but then whenever i was done reading it i was like what (laughs) 
what did we just read? I think it goes back to your iceberg theory that there just isn't a lot going on, but there's a lot of subtext that you have to read into. Yep. I hate you so much. I think you're right. Yes, I agree. The iceberg theory definitely applies to this story, and I think it's very prevalent throughout the entire thing, just in the amount that we're given through the story. And I'm not talking about the details, because I feel like we're given a lot of little details and just a small amount of larger, like, plot details. Like, the plot's kind of loose. Like, she's just planting flowers to go to dinner. Like, there's nothing to read between that. It's just like, oh, this is just the life of an average, like, housewife in the 1930s. But when you look deeper into it, you're like, no, this is not normal. Like, there's just, you have to read into the flowery language with the, like, like, larger, looser, like, family, like, slice of life plot and combine the two. I, I agree. I think it you do have to read it for what it says and then kind of look deeper into it and think, oh, wow, there's definitely something not right because they don't have children. She's described as masculine the whole time. She wants stuff that a woman shouldn't want. And I think this is kind of also what Steinbeck meant when he said that it was designed to strike without the reader's knowledge. Is you read it and you're just like, oh, they just have a normal life. And then you read it again and you're like, no, something is like he's trying to tell us something here. Yes. So I think that Steinbeck's kind of quote is kind of like the iceberg theory in a different like light. Like he didn't come up with it, obviously. But I think that if he'd known about it, he would have agreed with it. And that's what he was trying to say with that design is strike without the reader's knowledge. I agree. I completely agree. And I think we've really talked a lot about this story. Of course, there's so much more that could be discussed. There always is. There always is. <laughs> and I think, again, if we read this on a different day, we might have something completely different to say. Maybe we should just come back to all of them again and be like, wow, like, we were so wrong last time. <laughs> I think we should at least wait till we get through our first, like, 20 episodes before we start going back over them. <laughs> no, 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 just recycle <laughs> the same material. Yeah, we've done seven episodes. They're like, oh, I think they should talk about, you know, <laughs> the Telltale Hardigan. <laughs> Well, we hope you guys will reach out with your thoughts, and we will catch you next time with The New Dress by Virginia Woolf. Analytical is created, hosted, and produced by Hannah and John Newland. It is edited by John Newland. The artwork was created by Hannah Newland using Logo Maker and is owned by Hannah and John Newland. The theme music you're jamming to now is created by John Bartman, and you can check out more of his work at his website, johnbartman.com. Web design is by Hannah Newland, and you can find us at analyticalpod.wixsite.com slash analytical. And you can find that link in the description. All our social pages are at analyticalpod, and you can email us at analyticalpod at gmail.com to reach out and discuss your thoughts on this episode, to chat about literature, or life. Please rate and review us, and subscribe to our podcast, and tell your friends. It will help other people find and enjoy as well. 